number of years ago, I was with a young man, and we were to spend some time mentoring. And in our, in our time together, he confessed to me that he never bought his wife gifts. Like, how do you stay married? Um, he said, well, um, I get her cards. I get her, like, Visa cards. And um, I, I should have waited and listened to more of the story. But why not speak and ask for forgiveness later? And uh, I said, you are such a coward. And uh, he said, what do you mean? I said, there's no risk in a card. And he goes, well, then I paused for a moment. I said, why do you give her a card? And he goes, well, um, to my knowledge, every gift I ever gave her, she took back. Wrong size, wrong color, just didn't like it. And he said, to be honest with you, I got tired of the rejection. I still think he was a coward. But I understood. I understand. Because what his wife didn't realize at the time, later as we spent time together, she did. The power of rejection is amazing. It, it is so powerful to take something that somebody risked, gave you with love and intention and desire and to have you, and you say, well, what if it's the wrong size, pastor? You don't know. No, no, no. It's like, hey, 10 years, the guy can't miss that many times. She just wanted what she wanted. And never saw anything that he gave her as a gift. It reminds me a little bit of the average five-year-old. And what I mean by that is, if you've ever seen a five-year-old, what is the most important present to a five-year-old? the one that's unwrapped right in front of them. I've watched them. These aren't evil kids. <laughs> They're ours or our grandkids. And, and they unwrap it, and they're done. And it's like, whoo, set that baby aside. And the next one is going to be what? The magic gift. I mean, it doesn't matter what was, I mean, it could have been a horse. Doesn't matter. The next gift is the most important. Why? Because in a sense, by nature, I don't know where this programming came from, but it is in 100% of us. We're most excited about what we don't have. We want something different. And it was Paul was writing to this group of people, whatever we were given as a gift, he says, if you're single, it's a gift. If you're married, it's a gift. If you're circumcised, don't worry about it. If you're slave, don't worry about it. What they were always wanting was what they didn't have. They're like a five-year-old. And the thing that most excited them was the present in front of them, the hope of something in front of them. Now, it takes it a little further. This is what they were doing. They were saying to God, God, if you give me this, then I'll serve you. Lord, for me to serve you best, I need a spouse. God, for me to serve you best, I need my spouse that I have gone. God, for you, to, for if, I, if I'm going to serve you, God, I got to get my kids into school. Oh, God, if I'm going to serve you, my kids are draining me, man. They're in junior high and they cost me so much money. Brace yourself, wait till college. And then they're going to go and you're like, oh, God, I, I am sober. I can't serve you. I can't give to impact. I can't. And we're always doing what? Leveraging God for our Yes. 
God, I'll do this if you. And Paul understood that you misunderstand your calling in life. So he starts in verse 17. Pastor Tyler talked about marriage last week and the roles that we play. But now he's moving to another level and he's saying, at a sense, set all that aside. It ultimately doesn't really matter. It really doesn't. I want you to serve in the position that you're in. I don't want you to fall into the trap to think that the most significant change that needs to happen in your life so that you can say yes to God is circumstantial change. Because the most important thing that's ever happened to you is what happens in here. He tells him, jump in here with me, 1 Corinthians 7. Circumcision, verse 19, circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision, nothing. Keeping God's commands. What's his commands? What he called you to. That's what matters. It's not about marriage. It's not about circumcision. It's not about slavery. You want to make it about that. And we make it about that because we're always trying to live like a five-year-old. Getting excited about the next thing that we're asking God to do. He said, my friends, verse 17, nevertheless, each one of you should retain the place in life that God, the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. That's interesting. I think because Paul uses called in a, as a synonym in this text, I believe to be saved. You know, he didn't say, uh, you know, stay put where, where God has saved you. And he uses the sense of calling because salvation is a work God does here. Calling is a vocation. It's a life that we're called into. But what they had fallen into the trap of thinking that God, for me to really serve you, for me to be most effective, I need this change. And Paul is telling him that the most significant change in your life is internal, not circumstantial. Circumcision, nothing. Uncircumcision, nothing. Slavery, nothing. Marriage, nothing. Celibacy, nothing. We want to make it something. He says, no. Chapter 6, verse 11. Paul's giving them this series of things that, that, that they used to be. He says, hey, you guys were wicked at one point. You were deceived. You were sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, all of the different things. And then he says in verse 11, and this is what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. The most significant thing and the one thing that prepares you to say yes to God is not a change in your circumstances. It is a recognition that God has changed you internally. He's justified you. He's sanctified you. He's washed you. He's cleansed you. He's prepared you. And so the ability to serve God comes from who you are, not the circumstances of your life. We can fall into that trap. All of us can. We can fall into that trap to 
reject gift after gift after gift, thinking that if I can just get what I want, then I'll be happy. If I can just get the right color, if I can just get the whatever. And we don't understand that in many ways we treat God like my friend's wife treated him. She just simply rejected and rejected and rejected. And oftentimes what we do to the father is to say what you've given me, the place you've called me, the circumstance that you've called me into is not sufficient. I need it changed for me to be effective. I need it changed for me to serve you. I need it changed for me to find joy. And he tells them. And he uses a variety of things. It's not about a circumcision. It's really not about even marriage. Because he uses multiple different illustrations. Circumcision, slavery, marriage, all of those. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. He gets certain in there, slavery, because he says, if you're a slave, and you might look at that and think, there's no way, Paul, how can you say that? Well, he did. And I know there will be some who say, well, it's a different kind of slavery than we had slavery in the United States. There's nuances, there's differences, but there's a lot of similarities, actually more similarities than differences. You were a person who could not own property. You were a person who did not have a vote. You were a person who oftentimes weren't allowed into the temple. You were a personless person. You didn't have significant value. You were owned. You didn't have dignity. You were a tool. You were a product. And Paul says, if you can get out of that, that's okay. But even to you who are a slave, please don't fall into the trap to think that the only way I'm going to be used of God is if God gets me out of this current circumstance. That's five-year-old theology. That's the person who says that the only thing that is going to delight my heart is the next present, the next change. The next fulfillment, the ability to serve God comes not because what God does around you, but what God has done in you. It's who you are. And Paul summarizes it with this powerful and very cutting statement, keeping God's commands. That's what counts. Does Paul actually expect these people who are not married to never get married? No. no, that's not his point. But he does understand that there's things that are happening. Some have argued that Paul thinks that Christ is coming back so quickly that they don't have time to do anything other than, well, the reality is I think Paul did expect Christ's return to come soon, just like you and I do. I actually think Christ is coming back in my lifetime. I fully anticipate it. If I get to heaven and it's a thousand years later, God won't repent. But it feels like, but it felt that way to Paul. I don't actually think that's what he's thinking about. He talks about this current crisis. What is it? The crisis is this. You get married and you might have your wife drug out of the house and somebody put a knife to her neck and say, recant your faith, repent and take on, you know, your allegiance to Caesar. And if you don't, she doesn't live. Paul says there's going to be persecution that comes. There's going to be things that come. And you're going to think that you need this change. And you're going to need this change. And he goes, no, that's not it. When it comes down to serving God, you need no circumstantial change at all. 
You just need to say yes without a leveraged request. The most important thing for me is to say, yes, God, I'll be obedient. I'll serve you. You don't have to change a thing in my life. You don't have to correct this. You don't have to get me out of debt. You don't have to fix my marriage. You don't have to do anything. I'll say yes. And to do that, I think sometimes we have to discover the redemptive gift in our current circumstance. To say yes without any leverage request, meaning God, let's make it conditional. I'll serve you if you do this. I'll serve you when you do this. He comes to this point, and it's an area like Pastor Tyler talked about last week, is he brings up and most kind of unpacks this issue of celibacy. I think what Tyler said is true. We in the church don't really know what to do with celibacy. We, we, when, when a person is 18 years of age, uh, we say to them, and when they, when they come to us and say, hey, uh, mom, dad, I'm, I'm going to get married. You're, you're too young. You're only 18. You can barely vote. Can't drink. But I don't ever want you to drink anyhow. So you're, you're fine. They're 22. I was 22 years of age when Carrie and I got married. And there was a couple in the church that went to the pastor and said, you can't marry him. They were okay with Carrie because she's older than I am. (laughs) I know. It's awesome. I did that on purpose. I did. They say that women live longer than men. That way we're going to die at the same time. It's awesome. I thought ahead. And so this couple came to the pastor and the poor guy, he didn't know what to do. He called me in. He goes, hey, somebody doesn't want you to get married. I'm 22. For crying out loud, I've been living on my own for a number of years. Like, you know, what? Six years? I'm, I'm okay. I mean, are you okay with this pastor? Yeah, I'm fine. It just, they didn't think you were old enough. I was like, huh? I mean, if I was 17, I get it. 22? 22. We're, we're, we're kind of okay. 25? Are you dating anyone? 28? What's wrong with you? 30? Are you seeing a counselor? 40? Are you weird? You one of those? We don't know what to do with celibacy. We, we don't even have a concept, I think, in the church about this calling for that. And so, therefore, what Paul, I think, because the issue is not celibacy. He's just using that as one example of slavery, circumcision, slavery, or excuse me, celibacy. So, he brings this one up. And the principle is this. In whatever circumstance you find yourself, even one that you wish God would change. It's okay to be celibate and say, God, I want to get married. Not a problem. It's okay to be a slave. And say, I really don't want to be a slave the rest of my life. Paul says, if you can get out of it, great. But in the midst of that, are you going to wait till God changes it for you to say yes? And one of the ways that it helps us, Paul says, is if we begin to discover the redemptive gift in our current circumstance i.e. celibacy. He gives you two. Number one, gives us this in verse 35. He says, I am saying this, he's talking about celibacy. He says, I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to God. There's a gift if you're celibate. 
You have an undiv- a capacity of an undivided heart. Doesn't mean married people, you're lower spiritual. Paul does say, though, it's better. And by the way, he's a test case for this. It's better. Why? Two reasons. Number one is you have a capacity of a more focused and loyal devotion. What, what does the term devotion mean? It means a centered love, a defined loyalty, and an enthusiasm towards a particular subject. Devotion. The fact is, if you're married, you're splitting your attention. Rightly so, Paul says. You're spending time trying to please your wife, trying to please your husband. You have children, you're spending time taking care of them. Uh, you, you, you have a baby and you're going to go sleepless nights. It's not a bad thing, it just is. You don't have any of that. Paul says you have an opportunity. One time I went through the New Testament and I took every time that Paul prayed for a particular church or people and I wrote down what he prayed for and I kind of estimated that if Paul, and he oftentimes I pray for you daily, I'm praying in this before the Lord. And I thought if Paul takes all the different people that he's praying for and he does that daily and he, what he prays for them, I estimated minimally it's two hours a day. The fact is, is if you're married, you have children, unless you hate sleep, you're not going to get two hours of prayer a day. It's going to be a rare person. And so Paul says, there's an upside. There's a redemptive gift. Not only a singular devotion for the Lord, but also, he says, a singular mission for the kingdom. Verse 32 says, I would like to be free from concern. An un, I would like you to be free. He says, an unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs. What's that? It's different than devotion to God. This is about the kingdom mission of God. And the fact is, if you're single, you have greater capacity of distribution of your resources towards the mission of God. You have greater capacity to steward your time towards the mission of God. I understand all the benefits of marriage and I understand all the things that it can help you. I wouldn't trade it for the world. I'm just trying to help us to see in any circumstance what Paul wants you to do to keep you from becoming a five-year-old theologically thinking, I've got to get the next thing, is to say, wait a minute. There's some beautiful benefits in the place that I'm in. And for those of you who are celibate, if God has called you to that, exercise the beauty of that gift. If God has not called you to that and you're still single, don't take this passage as, oh dear God, I have to stay single. There's no. It may be that some of us who are married later in life are celibate. And we have to ask ourselves the question, is this a gift from God that gives me a capacity of devotion to him and devotion to his mission differently maybe than I've lived the rest of my life? A couple of weeks ago, I was up in Vancouver at the Jack Murdoch, um, it's the Murdoch Charitable Trust. I was invited there um, in, in relation to a, a young lady who was going in and making a request for uh, somewhere close to a quarter of a million dollars uh, of a ministry that she's involved in. She's a single woman. 
what she's uh, about is she has a calling to help um, women in particular who are caught in sex trafficking. And uh, she lives in Portland. And so she was invited by the Murdoch Foundation. She's already received one gift from him to come back for a second time. And she needed somebody there with her. And so I went. And I'm sitting there in this office. I know the story. Maybe you do too. It's a beautiful location. Oh, my goodness. It's down there on the Vancouver, right on the riverfront. It's just glorious. Jack Murdoch, he was the, one of the founders of Tektronics. Single man. Godly man. And when he was in his early 50s, I think he was 51 years of age, a group of his friends came to him and said, hey, Jack, uh, you have a pretty significant uh, wealth. And, and uh, the bottom line is you don't have any family and everything else. Have you taken care of like a will and a trust? Now, this guy's spun off, not just Tektronics, but multiple other companies. And he looks at him and said, no, I haven't. So he worked with a couple of his friends and he put it together. Six months after that was finished, Jack is flying up to Columbia. He loved flying. He was flying up to Columbia. He had a friend with him and he crashed the plane and he died. Now he put $90 million in this trust. And these friends who exhorted him to do this were trustees of his trust and I'm sitting up there realizing that that charitable trust has already given away $1 billion. Jack had a passion for the Northwest. You have to be in the Northwest for you to receive this grant. It has to be in the area of science, the arts, faith, education. Corbin's received one. Reed Saunders Association. I'm sitting there thinking, you know, God, they've given away a billion. They're currently sitting on two billion. They will grant somewhere in the vicinity of 400 different gifts every year. What if Jack would have been married? God called him to a certain life. And because of that, I have no idea. You can speculate. I don't know if when you get to heaven, you get to look down on earth. But if he doesn't, I guarantee you, Jesus is saying, oh, Jack, I've turned your 90 million into 2 billion. We've already given away a billion, advancing the kingdom of God. There were thousands of people who came to Christ last year in Pakistan. You were a part of that. There's hundreds of students at Corbin being trained. They're going to make a difference for Christ around the world. Jack, you are a part of that. And I guarantee you, I don't think Jack has spent one day in heaven regretting that he lived a celibate life. That he took his money and invested it. He lived with a single devotion. Maybe one of the things that all of us need to wrestle with is that rather than being like a five-year-old living for the joy of the next present, is we need to look at what God has given to us, even the difficult dark nights, those challenges that we have, and say, you know what, God, this is a gift. 
And I'm going to look for the redemptive gift of God in this place. I'm going to say yes to you. I'm going to serve you right where I'm at. Nothing needs to change. You've given me all that I need to find joy in you and to serve you. The redemptive gift can be found in celibacy, can be found, Paul says, I believe, even in slavery, in circumcision, uncircumcision, doesn't matter. But the next one, he says, there's the gift of a godly focus. This is where Paul almost sounds a little contradictory. Remember last week when Tyler was preaching, he talked about, you know, marriage. If you, if you want to seek marriage, be married. It's not, you're not sinning. Um, and if you're married, you have certain obligations, duties, Tyler's called them. But now he comes here in verse 29 and he says, what I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they have none. Oh, hang on. What? Those who mourn and didn't like the results of the uh, uh, voting on last week live as if it didn't even happen. I'm giving you guys some options for joy. Those who are happy, as if you're not. If you liked the elections on Tuesday, quit bragging about it. Those who buy something, as if it were not theirs to keep. Paul, you lost your mind? You just told us, if I'm married, that I should live to please her. Now you're telling me, live as if I'm not even married. What's the point? The point is this. There's a gift that God wants to give you. Whether you're mourning, whether you're having the best day of your life, whether you're married or you're not, the most important thing is for you to say yes to God. More important than your marriage, more important than your mourning, more important than your celebration, more important than what you bought, more important than the next present. Say yes with no leveraged request. He wants to, in a sense, take all that we just talked about marriage and say it's secondary. Celibacy, secondary. Circumcision, secondary. What matters most is in any circumstance, no matter how difficult it is, God wants you to say yes with no leveraged request. Victor Frankl Uh, was a neurologist and a psychologist, lived in Vienna in Austria. When he got married, he um, was within seven months, I believe it was, when he got married, his entire family was put in a concentration camp. He watched his dad starve to death, not of his own choice of those who were over the camp. His wife would eventually die. Most of his family would die. Victor had a specialty in the area, interestingly enough, of depression and suicide. That was his area of focus and study. And he developed something today, if you look it up, it's called logotherapy. And his purpose or his belief was this, that in any circumstances, if you can find a meaning in life, a meaning to live, then you can endure anything. And he said, meaning and purpose comes from a project to serve, the capacity to see a redemptive work of God in any situation, and third, a community of people who need you and you need. 
You put those together and he said, you can live through anything. One of the individuals that Victor was spending time with in camp and suicide rate was huge. He was telling Victor, I'm taking my life. I am not going to live with these barbaric animals. And Victor said, you can't. There is a redemptive reason in this place. And he said, there is no redemption in a concentration camp. Victor said, there is. You take your life and you will become silent. You will be forgotten. You'll be like all of the others who have taken their life in the middle of the situation and you'll have no impact. But if you live and you force them to kill you, their evil will be seen around the world. So much so that this will never happen again. Now I hope to God none of us have to go through that. But I guarantee you, some of you after Tuesday said, I'm moving to Tennessee. I'm out of here. And some of you have a marriage. You said, I'm out of here. Some of you have children and you want to say, I'm out of here. And Paul says, you stay put. You don't need a circumstantial change to worship and to serve God. You just need to say yes with no leveraged request. Because if a man can look a fellow prisoner in the eye and say, if you take your life, if you take things into your hands, your life's message will be eliminated. But if you live with passion and purpose and community, then their evil will be revealed. And this may never happen again. My friend, whatever you and I face, I have some things I want God to change. But I must, I must be mature enough to not have a five-year-old theology that says, God, for me to serve you, for me to find joy, for me to find hope, I need these adjustments. And he said, no, stay put, bloom where you're planted. Why? Because the most important thing he says in verse 19 is your obedience. God wants your yes. And he's not interested in your leveraged request. It's not that he's not interested in your prayer. He's not interested in you leveraging your obedience with a circumstantial change. That's manipulation. God doesn't play that game. He says, I want you yes without a leveraged request.